LBZ original. Is it gerrymandering? Gerrymandering? That's the, the correct pronunciation is gerrymandering. It's a hard G. So where does Gary come from? That's a misprint after something though, right? Gary, Eldridge Gary, was a congressman from Massachusetts. But it's Gary, not Jerry. I always thought it was Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always thought everyone says Gary. Well, everyone is wrong. Welcome to Studio BZ. I'm Paula Eben. John Keller here. Hi, Paula. Hi, John. How are you? Back from the weekend, and we've got a lot of interesting topics to talk about today. First of all, an interview that Liam Martin and I did on the air with the child psychologist Michael Thompson, the expert on boys, about what's going on with American boys uh, in light of what we saw going on in Parkland, Florida. We thought we would talk with him and get his take on how we can help Boys. His so that's book on this came out some time yeah. ago, right? His Paul? New York Times bestseller, Raising yeah. Cain, which is about protecting the emotional life of boys. I want to say it was around 2000. Yeah. It, you know, and, and it's the really uh, great work. And, yeah, and I think be interested a lot of to hear what's changed since then yeah. in terms very, of the pressure on, on boys and on parents raising boys. Yeah. Interesting to hear what he has to say. And then I'll be talking with Congressman Stephen Lynch of the 8th Congressional District, considered arguably one of the most conservative members of our all-democratic delegation, although by Massachusetts terms, he'd probably be considered a flaming liberal in about 40 other states. But he's always maintained a pro-life position, hasn't he? He is pro-life. And then we're going to talk briefly about this move to address Boston's classic architecture uh, the most recent wave of which in the 70s was brutalist architecture like Boston City Hall. And the thoughts about what to do about that. So, um, And then WBZ This Morning's Chris McKinnon and Kate Merrill reveal their worst on-air mistakes. We're going to let them talk about their horrible mistakes. Isn't that going to need a whole separate (laughs) podcast? That would be very funny, but they're very, uh, you know, they've got a great sense of humor, and they'd be good to share that. So um, let's talk first about mental health. And what's going on with boys? Um, uh, Liam Martin and I decided to call Dr. Michael Thompson, who's based locally, because he really is considered an expert on boys. He's the psychologist uh, that advises Belmont Hill School, uh, that boys' school with which I know you're familiar. And um, it's interesting to hear here what he says about what's happened over the last 50 years or so with boys. What is going on in the minds of one of these boys? Well, we have to remember the vast, vast majority of boys are healthy and have friendships and doing their homework and (laughs) want to contribute to society. Even though most uh, uh, violence is committed by young men, the vast majority of young men are not violent. It's important we we don't get confused uh, about that. What we have here is a very disturbed young man. And... Mental illness isn't contagious, but the way you display mental illness is contagious. Mm. We have girls who cut, and then their friends who are very upset start to cut, slicing your wrists, those kinds of things. We also know that suicide is contagious, that it happens in clusters, and we're always trying to manage for that. What's now happened is that school shootings have become contagious. Mm -hmm. They become ritualized. And a desperately unhappy, mentally unstable boy 
who has nobody in the world who can catch him and hold him uh, is thinking, this is the way to go out. This since, is the way to effectively end my life. Since Columbine, it has been an exponential increase. Uh, you also wrote a book called Mom, They're Teasing Me. Parents in schools rightfully are being told to be concerned about bullying and all right. this stuff and being kind to one another. At the same time, we want kids to be able to tell a teacher if they think a classmate is acting in a way that uh, where they might be dangerous. How do we, how do we bridge that where you're, you're being kind but you're also looking for warning signs in someone okay. and able to tell but someone about it teenagers never want to tell adults about what's going on with other teenagers but many kids did say that this boy right. was in trouble there were many red flags um he exhibited so many symptoms and told so many people it has to do with his access to guns and our Inability to make laws where you can take guns away from somebody mm. who's potentially dangerous. Mm. And that's what we need to stop somebody like this. He was saying, in effect, stop me, stop me. Yeah. And you heard so many of those teenagers say, we were telling people. They were we telling. Did report. They did. We reported today, someone from Massachusetts called Florida yeah. Yeah. to say that they knew about him and what he was doing. Yeah. Let's talk about technology and social media for just a minute. I mean, that's such a broad, huge yeah. thing. But... Uh, what a factor is this in kids feeling isolated and uh, looking at their social media posts has become so important, right, for families and for schools, what they're saying? Well, um, I think the Internet is, uh, uh, is a two-edged sword. It connects people. I've seen kids who had friends move away, who've stayed in touch with friends. There's a huge social potential yeah. for the Internet to only look at Internet bullying or the isolation of somebody sitting in the basement. Most kids are not sitting in the basement mentally ill. Mm. And what we hear about in these terrible tragedies is somebody who's in, a, in front of a computer but has no friends, or in the case of this boy, no parents. He was an adopted boy with perhaps, I don't know, an attachment disorder that lost both parents. He lost his mother last Thanksgiving. He had nobody mm. in the world. And so say it's just teasing or bullying in school is to trivialize mm -hmm. a serious mental illness. We've been, um, to speak about this more broadly, we've been encouraging, as we should, more confidence in girls. And in the meantime, it seems like, in some ways, in school, boys have been left behind. They're suspended at much higher rates. They're expelled at much higher much rates. Higher they're disciplined rates. in general at much higher rates. Yep. And they're graduating at much lower rates. This uh, young man, Nicholas Cruz, in fact, was expelled last year. Uh, what are we doing wrong in school? Is there a new approach that we need to take with boys in school? Well, it's a real challenge because we did something great by leveling the playing field for girls and stop directing them into home economics instead of physics. Mm -hmm. And now we've got girls outperforming boys in school. 56% of graduate degrees in the United States go to young women. 58% of college degrees go to young women. And boys have been flatlining academically for 50 years and girls just zoomed by them. Yeah. Um, what we need uh, is more research and more resources put into getting engaging boys in school, particularly in the early years. It's, it's really important that schools get boys, not always scold them, not always punish them. They are more physically active than girls. They will always be. Three quarters of the boys in the class in kindergarten class are more active than any girl. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't need an expert to tell you that. Just go look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just go look at them. Yeah. But what they need is 
uh, ways in which school can use their energy, give them re recess for so they can expend their energy, and teachers who are engaging. Yeah. You want to make like them boys. love school. That's right. Okay. Early on and catch them early on. You know what he, it's really fascinating, I think, what he said about making boys love school. Uh, he, he, points out in his book that school can be such a female-dominated atmosphere. Even still, most teachers are women in the elementary school ages. And so boys end up getting yelled at a lot um, and told to sit down and be quiet, which is difficult for them. But the other thing that he said in that interview, which just broke my heart and fascinated me, was when we hear about the 39 times people were called because of the shooter in Parkland, Florida. Every time that boy did something that made a tipster want to call in, what he was really screaming was, stop me, stop me. You know, and to think of that now, that for whatever reason in our society, we couldn't see that big picture as this boy was really crying out to people to get in his way before he showed up at that school. Gee, what's the old saying that we, we used to use, maybe some people still do, to sort of slough off a bad behavior by boys and young men. Boys will be boys. I don't think we even know what that means anymore. And uh, again, you know, I hate to be one of these types who's always pointing at the internet, but when you think of how a lonely, isolated, troubled boy or girl, mm -hmm. uh, but boys in particular, uh, have ample opportunity to get lost down rat holes sure. on the Internet, whether it's neo-Nazism or what have you. It's really, really scary, and I'll never get the image out of my mind of the killer at Sandy Hook. I, offhand, I can't remember his name. I don't want to mention it Yeah, we don't need to mention that. Uh, but remember how uh, the last couple of years of his life, he would spend almost every waking hour in a basement room Alone. with the few windows there were covered over with black paper uh, just playing his violin video games online. That's an image of despair and loneliness that a lot of boys encounter that will always stay with me. It is, as you say, kind of a dark hole that somebody who's really troubled can get trapped. Yeah, we're in uncharted territory. So, Paula, Stephen Lynch dropped by to do a little TV taping with me, and we got him to come up and, and hang out with us here on the on the podcast. To, for my money, uh, Lynch is one of the most interesting members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation. South Boston native, uh, a, a union president, rose from a steelworker to becoming president of the Steelworkers Union, uh, won the state Senate seat left open by the resignation of William Bulger, the longtime Senate president. He defeated Bulger's son to win that seat in a, a contest that I think was a real shocker for a lot of people. And then he was elected to Congress after the death of Congressman Joe Moakley, uh, also, never forget his victory speech, which was the most unusual victory speech I've ever seen. What? The final election was on September 11th, 2001. And what was going to be his victory speech turned out to be a very somber uh, memoriam uh, on the part of, uh, of those killed on that terrible day. So uh, he's been, uh, I would say... Probably the most conservative member of our well, state's delegation, although that's of, relative. Almost unheard of across America now to have a pro-life Democrat 
from near a big northeast city. Yeah, and he is he easily won re-election every every uh, two years since. And when we sat down to talk here, uh, I started off uh, with a question that unfortunately is necessary whenever you talk to a member of Congress in this era of absolutely insane gerrymandering, where these districts are constructed to represent a snake combined with an ostrich combined with an elephant's trunk in order to achieve certain political goals. I just started off by having him explain where the heck is the 8th Congressional District. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. We have three major cities in the 8th District, which is Boston, Quincy, and Brockton. But uh, just description-wise, it starts on the north. Uh, Dedham is probably one of my northernmost communities down through uh, Norwood, Walpole, down into Milton, of course, city of Boston, uh, primarily the South Boston, Dorchester, and North End uh, neighborhoods, down through Milton, Braintree, Weymouth, all the way down to Situate in the south. So the outline <coughs> kind of resembles a snake with a rhinoceros <laughs> attached to it? <laughs> sort of, yeah, sort okay. of. Yeah, exactly. like, a, like a lot of congressional yeah. districts. Yeah. So um, you... Uh, grew up in South Boston. Uh-huh. Born, born there. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, born in Dorchester, but uh, okay. Yeah. And I, I know it's rude to ask someone's age, but what year were you born? Fifty-five. So I'm sixty-two. Fifty-five. Okay. So, all these years later, what's the single biggest way in which South Boston has changed? When I grew up, uh, we didn't have guns in the in the projects. I grew up in the housing projects. Um, we didn't have OxyContin. We had we had alcohol, which is a hell of a lot easier to get over than you know. I mean, I had my own struggles with with alcohol, but I've been I've been sober now since 1982. So I don't do the math, but um, you know. These kids, if you get hooked on that OxyContin, you know, the heroin, it's, you know, it's, it's, heroin is forever. And so there's no second chances. And, and same thing growing up with, you know, guns being uh, so readily available. You know, that, that's a, that's a, that's a tough, 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 uh, you know, environment to, to live with. Um, a lot of single parents. Uh, look, I look in the projects where I grew up. And it was mostly two family. You know, people were struggling. We were poor. Uh, we had, you know, we got welfare, uh, you know, and benefits like that. But, but um, there was this struggle to get out and to buy a new home. Now you have generation after generation of people struggling, and oftentimes it's one parent trying to raise raise those kids. You know, and so uh, that's another uh, dynamic that I think has, uh, you know, ha- has hurt. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there's been some roaring successes in, in my district as well with job creation. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see companies like GE and Amazon looking at us. And uh, we just uh, did an agreement with uh, Siemens out in Walpole to add another 800 jobs. Great high-end jobs, wonderful pay, wonderful benefits. Uh, but the pressure on the housing stock has been there as well. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, my my mom and dad passed away a few years ago, and I think they bought their house for fourteen thousand, and uh, and and I, and I think they sold 
you know, it's 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 ungodly what they they sold the houses for. Uh, you know, when when they they had after they had passed, so uh, you know, close to a million dollars or something like that. So, yeah, Brooke, yeah. Our, our producer is here because yeah. she was just telling me a horror story about South Boston real estate prices. Yeah, I mean, I'm I just got married. You know, we're a young couple looking. Congratulations! To, thank you. Looking to buy a home, and you look in South Boston now. A three-story walk-up, one bedroom, eight hundred grand. Yeah, just eight, one unit in the walk-up. Just walk one yeah. unit, and yeah. now I mean, we're talking about the struggle. You could have bought the whole street back in the day. Absolutely, yeah. the, the struggle to get in. You know, yeah. housing, especially in Southie, has become yeah insanity. It is, yeah. On the one hand, a lot of families that you know were bought back in the day, it's been a wonderful gift and blessing to them. But when you think about how your kids are going to stay in that same neighborhood, if you'd like them to do so, it's, it's, it's really, really, really difficult. You mentioned the gentrification, the pressure on housing prices. Uh, and we, for, for a number of years, there's been a lot of, I, I call it hand-wringing, but not disparagingly, I mean, legitimate concern about the displacement of lower-income people from South Boston and, and the old guard, if you will, and their, their children's opportunity to live in the neighborhood they grew up in. Uh, but I'm not sure there's anything anyone can really do about it. Well, we can... We can do what we can. And I, I think some of some of the ideas that the governor and Mayor Walsh have had is to take some of these big developments on the waterfront and ask for contributions so that we can build workforce housing, which would allow, you know, a nurse, a teacher, a police officer, you know, a young couple uh, to, to stay in the neighborhood with a with a less of a, a mortgage and, and to, to provide, uh, you know, to provide those opportunities either through a lottery program or, uh, you know, uh, first-time home buyer programs, things like that. So, so there is work being done. It's just that the velocity of change is, is so sudden and so dramatic. The investments coming in, and and uh, you know, the idea about a, a one-bedroom apartment for seven or eight hundred thousand dollars is just is just stunning. And, you know, part of our problem is is as I mentioned, creating those housing opportunities for people with a modest income, but also we're 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 getting. Um, it's a, it's a feast of riches with all these companies trying to come in and they're offering big, big, big salaries. So people want to walk to work. It's just feeding this, this uh, you know, this, this phenomenon. Interestingly, so I live four days a week down in Washington, D.C. The same thing is happening there, except it's a, it's a middle class African-American community that is being displaced because of, of the same energy. All these companies, technology companies and lobbyists, everybody coming into D.C. And some of these traditionally African-American communities are being, you know, it's, it's uh, gentrification happening, um, you know, widely. These, you know, all these new restaurants coming in and you can, you can feel the tension among some of the longtime residents. I've been down there a while now. Um, you know, the longtime residents feel like there's a lot of pressure on them and that they're, they're, this middle-class African-American neighborhood is, is being changed. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to see. It's the same dynamic, and, um, and they're trying some of the very same um, uh, responses that we are here in Boston. In San Francisco, the big Silicon Valley employers send buses into San Francisco 
to pick up their employees who want to live in the city and can pay these yeah. uh, exorbitant prices for real estate to bust them out to the workplace. Down the peninsula there, there have been cases where some of the beleaguered lower income residents have attacked the buses, yeah. thrown rocks at them wow. to express their displeasure there. You know the old saying, money talks and everything else walks. Yeah. I, I don't want to be uh, totally negative here, but is there really much hope for slowing or stopping this onrushing tide of gentrification in I, South Boston? I, I think there is. I, I, you know, I see a lot of families that moved out a couple of uh, a generation ago and now their kids are trying to move back into the city. Uh, so, so some of that is 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 coming along. I also think there are there are different um, things we can try. Uh, our, our zoning uh, uh, code in, in Boston requires, you know, it hasn't changed a whole lot in the past, and it requires fairly large apartments. Um, when I think about some of the young couples that are trying to purchase, or, or even single, uh, you know, single people trying to buy an apartment, um, we we haven't really looked at these micro units. They've been banned. They've been banned, like you know, 400 square feet unit. Um, ironically, that's what I have in Washington D.C. I bought a one of these studio apartments. That gave me a chance, you know, to to get my foot in the door and to own a, a piece of property. Now, you know, technically, I could probably at this point, it's almost all paid off. I could probably trade up and get a bigger place. That would be, you know, if we had if we relaxed the building code a little bit in the city of Boston and allowed these micro units. We, we could allow a young couple to, to buy one of these at, at, at greatly reduced prices. And then, and then you know, when they want to have kids and they, you know, they, they, after they pay that down, they would at least have some equity in that, in that unit and then trade up and then hopefully, you know, get them started. Because uh, that's the only way I, I see some of these uh, young people are going to be able to get their first home. And there are no more. I bought a, I bought a fixer upper in South Boston for 14,000 bucks and myself and my brother-in-law and my cousin John went in and we ripped it out and fixed it up. I can't tell you what, you know, I still own it. It's a three yeah. bedroom, two bath. 1900? 1983. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Might as well yeah, be. 1983. You know, there are very few fixer uppers in, in yeah. South Boston anymore. In now Dorchester, you know, it's a big, bigger neighborhood, but it's also feeling the same pressures. Um, you know, so so the micro unit would take the place of that fixer upper, I think, as a as a starter home. One quick thing about those micro units: it's been a couple of years since we've been talking about those here in the city. How's the how's the progress going on developing those? And if it's not going as quickly as you'd like it to, what's the impediment? Well, I, I think interestingly enough, um, it's it's happening in in some scale. I do notice, like I, I did a ribbon cutting a while ago on some of the uh, buildings down on the waterfront. Uh, and I don't know what you would call it, this modern design like Ikea design where every square inch of that unit has been utilized in some way to to allow it to be smaller, uh, but yet offer all the same amenities. So so I, I think some of the designers are getting that and some of the architects are getting that. I'm just not seeing it uh, as widely spread 
as as you would like. And also, <clears throat> I'm not seeing the great reduction in, in price that I thought I would see for the smaller units, you know. So, but they're not micro units. These are, these are you know, 800 square feet, things like that. But uh, probably with all the services that you normally saw in something that was 2,000 square feet, it's just that they've designed this in a, in a, in a much more efficient way, energy efficient way, all, you know, very, uh, very, very, very attractive and, and modern. But uh, so we, we could use a little bit more price reduction on the units that do get produced. An IKEA micro unit, is that a, an apartment that's just big enough for a Swedish meatball to turn yeah, around in? Yeah, it's disposable. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before we wrap this up, I know you have to get going. Um, I want to ask you about the annual South Boston St. Patrick's Day breakfast with oh, yeah. the retirement of Senator Linda Dorsina Forey. Right. You and Councillor Flaherty have been, I, I think of, I was it the line in Goodfellas where the guy's talking about, I tried to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> exactly. There yeah. you are back yeah. hosting as well, you did back when you were the state they, senator. They handed there. it off to me, they said. Yeah. They handed it off like a live grenade, you know, so. So, uh, uh, obviously, Governor Baker will be there, I assume. He's yeah. always He's always yeah, there. He's welcome. You know that crowd pretty well, the crowd that shows up yeah. for, for the breakfast every year. Uh, what percent of them are going to vote for Charlie Baker for re-election this fall? Just a wild guess. 50 percent. I'd say wow. at least I mean, that's a Democratic crowd. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, uh, you know, sort of a moderate crowd. You know, they they. Uh, you know, 50% is probably, well, he might do a little better than that. I don't know. It all depends on, I, th- I think, with all due respect to the Republican, the, the Democratic candidates, no one has emerged yet because they're still in the primary it's process. Right. So so when it gets to that final, I think the, the, the Democratic uh, candidate will be much better defined and will, will stand for, you know, X, Y, Z. And so then there'll be that comparison. So I think it's a little early. Uh, I, I think trying to, Trying to uh, anticipate how they'll do is a little bit premature at this point. Right, one yeah. last thing on that. Yeah. When I contemplate the governor's race, and you're right, it is way early. Uh, everyone is sort of in awe of Governor Baker's sky-high approval ratings. And I hear talk about how it's a slam dunk. Well, it's I've been not. around long enough to know yeah. there is no such thing as a slam dunk. Right. Maybe Weld in 94 when he ran for re-election, but otherwise, for Republicans, there's no margin for error in the state. Yeah, you have and to remember how close the last election it, was. The closest ever, Yeah, at least in modern times. Uh, if... There's going to be an Achilles heel for Charlie Baker. Is it the MBTA? Because, boy, they're having yet another tough winter. Yeah, I I would probably have to agree with that. I think the one area of criticism, and we had another breakdown on the red line the other day. Someone, someone, you know, texted me with an attachment of a video with, you know, a few hundred people out on the street outside of Broadway Station, Andrew Station, uh, JFK State, everything along the red line. So, Not to mention uh, the passengers <coughs> that were showered with glass yeah, in yeah. that so, incident. Exactly, you know. exactly. So we can't have, uh, you know, we can't have that. We can't have that. We've got we've to get that system squared away. And he's been at it for some time now. Um, I don't know it's, if, if it's, a, you, know, uh, you know, a management issue internally there, but we've got to do a much better job on that. We're, we're, the, the traffic situation is forcing people onto that rapid transit system. That, that's got to be our solution. I actually would like to see us uh, consider this gondola uh, going from, from South Station out to the, uh, 
you know, they, they, they want to add about 5 million square feet of development out along the South Boston waterfront. But we, you know, and they just built a 1,500 car parking garage there. We, we cannot, it took me 40 minutes to get from my office to City Hall the other day, and it, I could walk it in, in, that, in that period of time. So we've got to think outside the box here. And I, I think that some of the folks have come up with some ideas, like the gondola. I've seen it work in other cities. Uh, and it would greatly reduce. So people in the interior, you know, especially in South Boston, would be able to just walk up to the to the gondola station and just it would be above traffic and go go right into the South Station, and uh, and what what stops at the convention center and the federal courthouse and others, um, and. You know, there's also a new dynamism about that and, and a new technology, a new way of moving people. Um, the, the rate of movement on this gondola is equal to about uh, 40 buses per hour. That's the number of people would be moving on that. So I, I think there's a there's an opportunity to do that where, where I think the mayor's on board. I think, you know, he's, he's he thinks outside the box and he's trying to figure out the problems, you know, solutions to the problems. And I think the governor has... Uh, expressed an open mind to it as well. Do you see that as a private enterprise or something the MBTA would run? Well, you would want it to be, it could be under a separate management. It could be. Um, I, so I know that uh, Keolis has uh, approached my office for a sit down to talk about uh, specifically the, the gondola, but uh, but you would want it integrated with the, the MBTA somehow. So I, I, you know, I think ideally if we had a well operating MBTA, you'd like it to be part of that. And and the state has to be on board because of the takings that would be necessary uh, to put the stanchions in, um, you know, the, the supports for, for the uh, for the gondola, gondola itself. But it's worked marvelously in a lot of other cities, and I, I think it's about time we, we try it ourselves. And Congressman Stephen Lynch, I'm going to jump the gun a little on St. Patrick's Day and say to you, may the road rise to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. I think I'm going to need it. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, John. Thank you. The MBTA announced a record offer of that. <laughs> so you, you had heard about this being bandied about, about the gondola idea? I've heard talk about using gondolas yeah. as a way of dealing with other transportation issues. I've heard talk about a monorail down the median on the mass turnpike. I mean, it's been out there, floated around. This is the first I heard about... Uh, how serious this talk is about a gondola in the seaport. And I guess the first question comes to my mind, Paul, is the same question you have about anything mechanical around here. How's this going to survive a New England winter? Well, this is true. We add a blizzard and mix, right? And it's just going to be, or just a sub-freezing day. But, you know, I'm always so impressed, John. I think a lot of people in the Boston area find this. You know, you go to other cities and, you know, an airport and, you know, anywhere in Europe looks like the set of a James Bond movie. And you go to New York or Chicago, they, these places seem to find a way in the cold to have very innovative uh, modes of transportation. Pardon my ignorance, but isn't there like a gondola yeah, kind of Roosevelt thing? Yeah, from Roosevelt Island in, yeah, uh, yeah. in the East River. So if they can do it, we should be able to pull it off. I love this idea. Yeah, well, I'm open to anything that'll help. I, I do want to point out, though, being the buzzkill that I am... <laughs> The only reason we need to be talking about this is that the planning of the new seaport district right. in South Boston has been a debacle. Big development money called the yeah. shots yeah. while planners and thinkers were still putting their pants right. on. Right. Or skirts, as it were. <laughs> so speaking of which, um, speaking of, of, of so Boston, and I guess, I guess so 70. One leg at a time, just like you. Okay, let's look at it. Put it online. 
Let's talk about the height of modernist architecture, brutalism, and brutalist architecture, most famously depicted in Boston in the Boston City Hall. Uh, There are instances around the country and on various college campuses of this, the pride of the early 70s. I mean, for me personally, it just couldn't be worse. Dark gray, concrete, with holes in it. I I just, I, I loathe and despise looking at Boston City Hall every time I go by, and I think it's a blight on the landscape. But the new case is for preserving and improving brutalist architecture. Here's an example from a piece that was in the Washington Post that said, progressive designers want to create buildings that fit their vision of a strong and benevolent public sector And they're bucking the previous generation with its cool, glassy modernism. Uh, You know, of course, that was the initial intent of brutalism. And so they want to preserve brutalism, not retrofit these buildings to make them look more attractive. What do you think? More power to them. I must say, sometimes an idea is so bad That there's no point in trying to fix it. True. You just need to recognize that it was a terrible idea. See to it that any vestige of it is eradicated and never, ever do it again. Don't repeat it. And that's the way I feel, not just about Boston City Hall, but what's the name of that monstrosity on the other side of of Government Center? Center Plaza. No, well, Center Plaza. But I'm thinking the the building that contains the unemployment division. It was featured in The Departed. Yes. You know know what I'm talking about. Down over toward the garden with the long concrete steps Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the... looks like a maximum security prison. Right, right. And But Boston City Hall is the most horrendous building in the city by far. Physically, it's, it's vile and ugly. Uh, it creates a barren, windswept, frozen tundra environment. And all the artificial turf and plastic Adirondack right. chairs and skating help. rinks that they try gamely to yeah, humanize right. the space with do- doesn't really help. But it's even worse inside. It's, it's dark. Sm- it smells like a urinal well, at all times. That is true. Uh, it's impossible to find your way around. It's inhospitable. It's cold. The windows make it so dark. It's, a, it's a prison. It does look like a prison. I do. I agree with you. I think like the dog that's so ugly, it's cute. I think at this point, the building has to be left as is. I guess they could do what they could do. I don't want one penny of public money spent trying to undo this disaster. I think the one thing that could be done is you point out the brick hellscape of that plaza out in front. I know at Boston College, they tried to blend. They did a pretty good job of building the very modernist Tip O'Neill Library is next to a Gothic building. And it had the same horrid brick plaza for decades. They ripped that up and terraced it. So at least there's grass and steps between the Gothic and the modern, and it kind of flows. I could appreciate someone doing that. Tear up all that red brick, terrace it, get some grass in there so people can sit on the lawn at lunchtime, whatever. But um, this, unfortunately, should be a monument to what a public disaster 
you can have, and not one penny of taxpayer money should go to trying to fix that thing. Well, I, I respectfully disagree with you, though, about keeping it. I think it should be destroyed. Yeah. And I think you could pay for the destruction by selling off opportunities to whack at it with a sledgehammer. Oh, that's true, the anger. To could people just... who've had to use it or look at it over the years. Yep. You know, 25 bucks a whack, this is true. you'd raise millions in a hurry. The <laughs> line can... would be around the block several times. You could times. take it down with ease. I'm not afraid of change. I'm afraid of the lack of change. Hi, this is Kate Merrill. And Chris McKinnon. Oh, um, there's so many screw-ups. Um... Can you remember your screw? Yeah, mine's easy. I walked off. This was my first day on the job at WBZ on the air on the morning show. And I was petrified. And Sam called me our executive producer on the way down. And she said, um, I hate to throw this on top of today being your first day, but CBS This Morning wants a hit for the national show. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, so we do the whole story. They had me track it a bunch of times. It was going really well. I nailed it, in my mind, and then got the signal that I was clear, so I started walking off camera, and Gail King said... Chris, we just have to say to you, we just heard during the break that this is your first day of work. Welcome. What a story you have. Okay. I guess Chris says, says, I'm out here so long, suckers. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Chris said, I gotta go. Chris, nice job, and welcome. She called me Shark Boy when we went down to New York City over the summer. So you get your shot at the national news and you just walk out of frame. Yeah, walked out of frame. It ended up on Jimmy Fallon. It ended up everywhere. They were making fun of me and it was hilarious. And That's so funny. I have so many mess ups. I don't even know what the worst one is. I was reporting in Nashville on ABC, which had the Super Bowl. The Titans were in the Super Bowl. And to make a long story short, uh, the network dumped out too soon and nobody was in front of a camera. So um, I jumped in front of a camera, not really knowing that the Super Bowl was over. It was 925. And I thought we were just doing a test when, in fact, I was on TV after the Super Bowl. It was the first person you saw. The Titans lost by a yard that year. So Nashville watched to the very end. And I stood in front of the camera thinking it was just a test. And it was the highest broadcasted thing ever to this day on Nashville TV. And I was just making a fool of myself because I didn't think I was really on TV. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, everybody, I'm Kamara live from the streets of Nashville. And people started coming out of the bar. I didn't realize the game had ended. They lost the Super Bowl by one yard. So it was a devastating blow to the gut for Nashville fans. And I was trying to talk to people on the streets of Nashville. No one would talk to me. It was horribly uncomfortable. And everybody saw it. I went back to Nashville a couple years ago, so I don't know, 15 years later, and I was at a hockey game with my husband, and people came up to me and said, oh yeah, you're the girl after the Super Bowl, oh my god, that was so awful. So, people remember, that's why I got out of there. No. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I'm glad I packed up out of there, but that's why they tell you to go to small little markets or smaller markets to learn the job, so that when you can make these mistakes and... I guess there's less people watching. You're hopefully not on national television. <laughs> like you. Um, Chris McKinnon was adorable on CBS this morning, and I thought they all, you know, made him feel so good about it. They were just teasing him about it. He's such a good egg. He handled it very well. You know, and poor Kate. What are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? We're human. And, yeah. and I think viewers 
prefer for us not to pretend that we're superhuman. Yes. This whole voice of God, oh, you're on TV, you're <laughs> you're infallible. That's ridiculous. How laughable is that? And sometimes <laughs> if I'm taping my Sunday morning segment for yeah. TV and I'll fumble on something. Yeah. Almost never happens, but once in a while it does. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the director will be in my ear saying, do you want to start again? And, my feeling is no. no. Yeah. I don't mind showing that I'm not perfect. I think people appreciate it. What's your yeah. biggest screw up, Paula? I agree with you. Um, recently on the 8 o'clock news, we were talking about people meeting in various ways for dating. And I was um, saying that I think a great way for women to meet men is to go play golf. You know, if you want to meet men in their 30s and 40s, a lot of them are at golf courses. And I started describing how they love to stand behind you and reach around and show you how to um, to swing a golf club. And very innocently, I wandered into very dangerous oh territory. And Leah Martin and Steve Burton were dying. Second only to the moment when <laughs> Steve Burton and I were on the weekend evening news once and Cam Neely had been in some sort of celebrity um, golf tournament. And my husband is a really great golfer, so I'm constantly watching. You know, there are certain golf terms does he, they use. Does he reach around and show you how to? <laughs> so I'm t- we're watching Cam Neely uh, do something miraculous in the celebrity golf tournament. And so when it came out to me and Steve Burton, I said, to, I turned to Steve and I said, "Wow, Cam Neely can really get it up and down," which is a golf term for being able to chip up onto the and green then putt out. and putt. Very yeah. quickly, Steve Burton's jaw dropped, yeah. and he really did yeah. not know what to say. Well, Steve has a filthy <laughs> mind. We all know that. So I have we know innocently walked into some uncomfortable moments. Yeah. That is awkward, news. no yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. This was a good one. Interesting stuff. Again. To people listening, mm. we need your help. Yep. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of, less of. I'm at at Keller at Large on Twitter. Email is Keller at WBCTV.com. I'm at Paula Eben, WBZ, PM Eben at CBS.com. We'd love to hear from you anytime, and we can make it a part of Studio BZ. And we always respond to emails and tweets that are not too hostile. Right, Paula? Yes, we will. That's what I say about gift. Yeah. It's gift. It's not chip. It's not, not chip. Okay, I mean, there you no, go. It's I would think it would be gift. What's what the chance for graphic? For graphical Graphic interface. Oh, okay. Something. I didn't yeah. know that. I know. Graphical interface. Yeah, it is And gift. the creator of the gift says it's GIF. Yeah. And he, oh, he doesn't. He and he said that he like a couple of years ago. He, you had, that term was in use for for many years before he said that. Yes. Yeah. And he has no right to come out. See, this is good conversation here. Yeah. Yeah.